when I was home in Kentucky for the holidays, I decided to go up in the attic where I had not been a long time and poke around for a while and see what I could find up there. I found a lot of toys from my childhood. and uh, Omer was with me and kind of joked about my raggedy Andy doll that I had. And some of you don't know what that is, you younger people, you lost out. I had a, a, a Dapper Dan doll that taught you how to button and snap and tie shoes and everything. It was, it was high tech for my day and time. And then I decided to look for a book that was a favorite book of mine when I was a little kid. I just remembered that it was a book about battles, famous battles in history, and that it had a yellow cover and a cavalry officer on the front. That's all I, I remembered about it. So we started poking around, and then we found a box that had old books in it and started digging through it, and I found the cover, but there was no book. It was just the cover of it. So then that really got me excited, so I got the author's name and the publisher and all that from the cover and searched on the internet, and nowhere in the United States could I find that book in any used bookstore. So then uh, I did another search and found the reference to it on eBay, which I've only used a couple times in my life, but when you're on the, on the trail and you're all excited and you're that close, you've just got to go ahead and do it. So I made contact with this lady in England and uh, placed a bid on it. Nobody else in the whole world placed a bid on that book, only me. <laughs> so I got it for like, you know, a, a dollar and a half uh, American, uh, and so it's supposed to be on its way. So I'm, I'm kind of excited, reliving my, my childhood a little bit, I guess. But I think one of the reasons that such a book is was of interest to me as a kid, and certainly now that I'm older, is that if you think about it, most of the great turning points in world history were precipitated by a battle of some kind. Think how different world history has been ever since the battle at Yorktown when the Americans and the French were able to corner uh, the British General Cornwallis and induce them to surrender and uh, open the door for us to have our own country. Think about how different uh, our nation's history was after the Battle of Gettysburg when the Confederacy reached its, its high watermark and then receded. Think how different the world has been just since September 11th in our own country. So a, a lot of battles end up being the turning points in, in world history. I bring this up because the Bible describes the coming of Jesus and his ministry and especially his death as a great battle and as a great triumph. Hebrews 2 says that since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself took of the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to bondage. Jesus' death on the cross was a great crushing defeat for the devil and a crowning victory in God's plan and opened the door for a great turning point in history, which is the day of Pentecost. And it's, it is that that I wish to speak with you about this morning. In fact, just to set the stage over the next several weeks, my goal is to talk with you about the first church, the church in Jerusalem in these early chapters in Acts, with the goal of understanding what we should be as a local church what problems we face as a local church and how to deal with them. 
And I think the study of the church in Jerusalem, which is the one where all of the apostles were, under their direction, is a logical place to look for insight and for a model. But I just felt like to jump right into the last part of Acts 2 and talk about the church there without talking about the momentous events and the importance that take place of the things that take place on Pentecost would be really a great mistake. So what I want to do is for the first couple of weeks just work our way through Acts chapter 2 and then we'll spend most of our time talking about the church uh, in Jerusalem. So if you just go ahead and turn with me, I wanted to begin a little bit by explaining what Pentecost actually is. That term itself is basically just a reference to 50 days. And the reason that is important is because this feast of the Jews was counted off from the Passover for 50 days. Uh, in fact, because basically it is seven weeks from the time of Passover, sometimes in the Old Testament this feast is called the Feast of Weeks, denoting the seven weeks from Passover. Because of where it fell in the calendar year, and in particular with regard to the agricultural cycles, this feast is sometimes called the Feast of the First Fruits. It was the first of the barley harvest that would take place uh, usually in uh, late April or in May sometime. In fact, the Bible sometimes uses both terms. Exodus 34:22 says, You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Now, among the Jews, there was a little bit of debate as to how to calculate exactly when Pentecost would fill. The key passage is in Luke 23, 15, which says, You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath. The day after the Sabbath, of course, is the first day of the week. It's Sunday. And the Sadducees, who were in control of the temple in the first century, counted that literally. So they would always count seven full weeks from the day after the Passover Sabbath, which meant that for the Sadducees, Passover always fell on Sunday. And since they were in control of the temple in the New Testament period, what that tells us is what we're going to read about here in Acts chapter 2 took place on the first day of the week. It took place on what we call a Sunday. Now, as I said, this is a turning point of the Bible, and for that reason... This chapter and this day and the events that transpire here are really the culmination of so much of what the Old Testament had to teach. So what I want to do this morning is just read through the verses here in the first part of Acts 2. And as we go through this chapter, point out some of the connections between what takes place here and some of those key turning points or events of the Old Testament. So I'm going to begin here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. I was preaching through Acts 2 one time in this really small congregation in eastern Kentucky called Tin Town. And they had a huge old furnace in the building. And it was in the wintertime. And right as I read that verse, this huge furnace kicked on with this huge Whoosh of Aaron. I told him if I see cloven tongues of fire, I'm out of here. But fortunately, we got through it without any of that. It says in verse 3, And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
I would suggest for you, as you read those verses, against the backdrop of the Old Testament and the experience of the Jews, that what is described for us here would have brought to mind another amazing manifestation of God's presence with his people. And that would have been the feeling of the tabernacle, which you could repeat with the feeling of the temple later in Israel's history. In fact, turn back with me, if you would, to Exodus 40, the last couple of verses of the book of Exodus. And remember, I told you when we went through Exodus last Sunday night, that the last part of this book is all about God's dwelling with his people. Now, before you get to this point, you have all of this instruction about how the tabernacle was to be made and how it was built. But once you get through all of that, here's the payoff. Exodus 40, 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So here in Acts 2, in the house of God, in the, the temple, the old temple, you have this amazing manifestation of God's presence with his people, very similar in many respects, including the use of fire, as you find back here in Exodus chapter 40. Now we need to understand that there are a lot of details here in Acts 2 that are very unique and very specific to the apostles themselves. In fact, as you go through Acts 1 and Acts 2, it's very clear that this particular manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming upon and people speaking in tongues is something that here was limited to the apostles. That's the natural meaning of the text when it tells us in verse 1, they were all together. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 26, the natural antecedent of that is the apostles. They were all together in one place. Furthermore, the apostles were waiting for this very event. Back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had told the twelve. In uh, verse 4, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Furthermore, when this takes place and they begin to speak, later we learn that those who were speaking were all Galileans. That's what it says in Acts 2 and verse 7. And that would have been true of all of the apostles. The only one of them that was not a Galilean was Judas. And of course by this point in time um, he is dead. So my point is we need to understand there are some unique things taking place here in Acts 2. That have a very definite context and some limitations on them. We also need to understand that when the Bible says that these men were speaking in tongues. That this was not the... The, the only word I know to use really is the, the nonsensical syllables that so often you hear today among those who claim to speak in tongues. These tongues were languages. This is made abundantly clear in, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 6. At the sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 8, how is it that we hear each of, them, each of us in his own native language? 
So they were speaking languages. This was not just sort of any kind of, of jibber-jabber that the apostles were speaking in. And furthermore, again, just to emphasize how unique some of these details are, the Bible also makes it very clear that even in the apostolic era, not every Christian spoke in tongues. Some people believe that in order to be a Christian, in order to be saved, you have to speak in tongues. And yet in 1 Corinthians 12.10, Paul says that there were some who had prophecy, another the ability to distinguish between spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues. This was not a universal experience of all Christians. But I do want to make this point. The concept of God filling his temple with his spirit, and dwelling in his holy house is something that the New Testament teaches is true for the church generally. I'm not talking about a miraculous sense of God's spirit like what we're reading about here in Acts 2. But the Bible makes it very clear that the church is the new temple of God, the new house of God. The house of God is not this structure with a green roof on it. The house of God are those people who have come to Jesus Christ and been saved in him and are made together a new temple of God. And in that temple, God dwells in his presence. Ephesians 2 says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And the beginning of the church, the beginning of God's new temple, is what we've just been reading about here in Acts chapter 2. Now, I've already mentioned these tongues a little bit. Let's kind of back up and start in verse 5 here in Acts 2. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. A couple of things to consider. Because Pentecost followed so relatively closely to Passover, and because those were two of the three major festivals that the Jews were expected to travel to Jerusalem for, it's likely that a lot of people who would have come from around the world who were Jews for the Passover have stayed until the time of Pentecost. And of course, there were Jews everywhere in the empire. There were Jewish colonies all throughout the Roman Empire. Some of those people may have decided to move back to their homeland. So that would explain the presence of all of these Jewish people from around the world. And then as we've already read, verse 6, At this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And then it mentions all of the different places that would reflect the different languages that these men were speaking. Verse 11, Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Now what event of speaking in different tongues so that everyone can understand, does this remind you of from the Old Testament? Sort of in reverse, this brings to mind, at least in, in my mind, the story of the Tower of Babel, recorded in Genesis chapter 11. There's a lot probably going on that we don't understand in Genesis chapter 11. One thing the Bible seems to indicate is 
that God, after the flood, had told Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, whereas everybody seems to be sort of trying to maintain their own unitary location. The other thing, of course, is they decide to build a house to God, a tower into the heavens, which we know from archaeology took place a lot in ancient Babylon, these structures called ziggurats, these terraced towers that reached up into the heavens. And certainly Genesis 11 seems to indicate there's a lot of pride and arrogance on the part of these people who want to be lifted up to the place of God. But you remember that because of all of these sinful attitudes and actions, that God says the way we're going to put the brakes on this is we are going to divide them. And the way we will divide them is we're going to give them different languages. And so that is the penalty that comes about. From that standpoint, if different languages were the result of the penalty for sin in Genesis 11, then to suddenly have a day dawn in which people from all over the world, though they spoke different languages, can all now understand the same thing, is a way of describing for us the reversal of the curse of sin as pronounced at the Tower of Babel. And of course, Jesus had told the apostles, I want you to go to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. There will be a unifying message and a unifying duty for mankind now that will cut across different nations, tribes, and tongues. And that is the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now back to Acts chapter 2. It says in verse 14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And at this point, Peter begins to carry out the command that Jesus had given back in volume 1. If you want to think of Luke and Acts as volumes 1 and 2 of the same work, go back with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 24. And notice what Jesus says to the apostles in verse 44. Excuse me, verse 46. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Notice verse 47. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So what we're reading here in Acts 2 is a turning point. It is a beginning. It is the dawning of a new era which Jesus said would take place. And now Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, stands before these men and begins to deliver them the good news of the new covenant found in Jesus Christ. When you couple that with the fact that they are in Jerusalem, which is on a mountain, Mount Zion, what you have here is the delivery of a new covenant on a mountain. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to start to connect that back with when Israel was given its first covenant from a mountain, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. In fact, if we were Jews, this connection would be a lot stronger than it is for us as Christians. Because the Jews had a traditional belief that the day of Pentecost was the same day on the calendar that Moses had gone up onto Mount Sinai to get the law. If you kind of think about it, in Exodus 12, you have the Passover and the Exodus in, in Exodus 13. And then the giving of the law takes place in Exodus 19, 
Not hard to imagine that that would have been about a seven-week period. And for that and some other reasons, the Jews began to connect the giving of the law with the day of Pentecost and considered Pentecost an anniversary of the giving of the law. Furthermore, this is something I just learned this past week. Among some of the Jews, there was a belief that when the law was spoken to them, uh, this is a quotation from one of the rabbinical writings, it says, the Ten Commandments were promulgated with a single sound, yet it says all the people perceived their voices, the voices. This shows that when the voice went forth, it was divided into seven voices and then went into 70 tongues and every people received the law in their own language. Isn't that very peculiar that the Jews had a traditional belief that when the law was given here, you've got Israelites who came from different tribes, they've been in a different country, maybe have picked up different languages, but when the law is given, it's one voice that everyone understands. And now on the same day that they would have traditionally said is the day that took place, now Peter and the apostles stand and by the Spirit of God speak in such a way that everyone who is there can understand. Another connection you can make with the Old Testament would come from one of the other names for Pentecost. As I said to you, it's not only called in the Old Testament the Feast of Weeks. It is also called the Feast of First Fruits, which is significant because here in Acts chapter 2, as the gospel is first preached, you are going to have the first converts to the preaching of the gospel by the apostles, the first fruits of the harvest that we will study about through the rest of the book of Acts. So what I'm saying to you is, from the standpoint of the Old Testament, there is an awful lot packed into what takes place here in Acts chapter 2 that kind of is tied together because this, this is such a turning point in history. What I want to focus on in the rest of our study together this morning is the specific application Peter himself makes starting in verse 16. He says to them, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes from Joel chapter 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. A couple of things just to point out to you here from Peter's quotation of Joel 2. This is one of those times where we don't have to wonder what the Old Testament was talking about because an inspired writer says, this is it. I wish there were a lot more of those in the New Testament, but they're not. But this is one of those times where Peter tells us for sure this is it. And as he quotes here from Joel chapter 2, this passage uses a lot of apocalyptic language of the sun going dark and the moon turned to blood, which is a symbolic way of saying there's a great change taking place. A new order is coming, and it's going to turn the world upside down. And that's exactly what begins to happen here in Acts chapter 2. But what I especially want to point out to you is that Peter identifies this time frame 
in verse 17 as the last days. Some translations may say the latter days. In the Old Testament, there are many passages that talk about the last days or the latter days. And what I would suggest for you is this, that as the prophets were given the measure of insight that God gave to them. As Peter tells us, they wondered what time and manner of person it would be that, that was being signified by what God gave to them. From their perspective, the events of the cross and what would happen after that were not very specific. They had some pieces of information, not a lot. From their perspective, it was the distant future or the last days or latter days. And Peter says that we have now come to that time. Obviously then what he means by that is not the final few days of human existence in history. But what he means is this is that era that the Old Testament prophets told us about. We have now come to the dawning of this new era of God's plan for all of us. And that is what the New Testament says we all live in until the end takes place. We live in this period that the prophets were looking for with great expectation when the Messiah would come and usher in the kingdom of God. In fact, look with me at a couple of other passages which talk about this same time frame. Look with me back in Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah 2 verse 1 says, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's Mount Zion, of course, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills. You know, where my family's from in eastern Kentucky, we talk about being from the mountains. Well, we're talking about hills. They're not really mountains. But they're mountains to us. So a couple of years ago, I got to fly out to Portland, Oregon to uh, spend a few days and also up into Seattle some. And when I was flying out there, I got to see some mountains. It was an awesome sight. Now, those of you who might be from out there or have spent a lot of time out there, it's probably ho-hum to you. It wasn't to me. In fact, I was kind of nervously looking, you know, those peaks are awful close to the plane, looks like to me. Are we going to get around here? But, you know, of course we did. But they're majestic and they are awesome. They're spectacular. The Bible sometimes uses mountains to describe powerful government. And when Isaiah says here, the house, the mountain of the house of the Lord will become the highest, what it means is there will be a day when God's kingdom is exalted among all the world. And it says at the end of verse 2, all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Those thousands of people who gathered together on Mount Zion in Jerusalem for that day of Pentecost long ago had no idea what was about to take place. But what Peter is explaining to them is we have now come to that era that the prophets told us about. The last days or latter days. And now King Jesus has been exalted to heaven. And his kingdom has been ushered in. And you can become a part of it. You can have a relationship with him. You can be in the house of the Messiah. And of course as Acts 2 told us there were people from all nations who had gathered there on that day literally 
And as the rest of Acts tells us, the apostles went out to all the nations symbolically to bring the law to them. Another passage, look with me over in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. You may remember some of the elements of this story. This is the story where King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of a great statue composed of four elements. It's composed of a head of gold and chest and shoulders of silver and belly and thigh of bronze and then legs of feet of iron and then the feet had clay mixed in them as well. And then he saw a stone cut out of a mountain without hands. And I always think of bowling. That's pretty much the level I operate on. But this stone rolls and smashes into that statue, which would have been top-heavy, the gold at the top and clay at the bottom, and topples it and breaks it. And then fills the earth. Well, if you were a king and you saw that kind of dream, you'd probably be a little bit disturbed. And so he calls all of his wise men and conjurers. None of them can tell him the dream or its interpretation. He hears about Daniel, though. And what I want you to notice is, in verse 28, that Daniel says to him, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And then Daniel explains to him that this statue represents world powers, that Nebuchadnezzar himself is the head of gold, according to verse 36 and 37. That would be the Babylonian kingdom. The kingdom that followed them, according to Daniel 5, was the Persians. The chest and shoulders of silver. And then followed that the conquest of Alexander and Greek dominance, which was a very brief time, but that would sort of be the thighs of, uh, and belly of bronze. And then there is a fourth kingdom, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Peter has told us what Pentecost signifies. The dawning of this era the prophets looked forward to. And it is the day in which Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God and now proclaimed king. And now all the world is to be brought into submission to his reign. And you know, as you read through the rest of the book of Acts, there are all of these different powers that conspire together to stop the advance of the kingdom of God. There is the Sadducees in Acts 4 and Acts 5, and the Jewish council in Acts 5, and then there are the Pharisees in Acts 6 and 7. And as you go through the rest of the book, unbelieving Jews in different cities, Roman magistrates in different provinces, Caesar himself, and yet throughout the book of Acts, Though there are obstacles one after another, the Bible tells us constantly the word of the Lord grew. The word of the Lord was multiplied. The number of disciples grew. No matter what people did to try to stop the advance of the kingdom of God, God's purposes would not be denied. And throughout history, there have been kingdoms and empires that have tried to stomp out Christianity and stop the spread of the gospel, and they have fallen by the wayside. And it's testimony to the fact that those who believe in Jesus are part of an enduring kingdom which will last forever. Big events, turning point in history. And it is this turning point that opens the door for the first church to be established. Let's take our psalm books out, please, and turn to the invitation number. I want to say just one more thing as our time together comes to an end this morning. I can't wait to get my hands on my little yellow book. I was looking on eBay. It said it only had 67 pages. I thought, 
this was a book, maybe I was just a slow kid, because I remember reading it hours on end, but uh, or maybe I just kept rereading some of the parts that were exciting. I'll tell you what is a very sobering thought, though, about a book like that, which goes through history and talks about great battles. It talks about battles between kingdoms that were the greatest kingdoms the world at that time had ever seen that are no longer great kingdoms. I remember one of the battles it talks about is one of the battles of Hannibal, the great Carthaginian general who had Rome on the run for so long, but his kingdom didn't last long at all. It'll talk about the battles of the Romans, the Roman kingdom, the, the, the kingdom, the, the iron kingdom of its day and time, the one that had brought the, the Roman peace, Pax Romana, to all the known world. And just a few hundred years after the day of Pentecost is no longer a kingdom. Great Britain once boasted of a, king, a kingdom on which the sun never set. Doesn't have a kingdom like that anymore. The one thing you can count on in history is that superpowers never last. It's a sobering thought when you realize our country will be in that same, same trajectory of history someday. But it just makes it all the more meaningful to know that if you are in Jesus Christ and you are submitting to his reign as king, that you're a part of something that though political and military powers for centuries have tried to stop, can never lay a finger on it because you're part of a kingdom that is not of this world. And this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you're someone who thinks there is something in the world, some power, some pleasure, some opportunity that is more important than surrendering to the kingship of Jesus Christ. I just want you to know that you are placing your lot with losers. Because everyone who has done that has lost. And they've lost finally and horribly. And that only through Jesus Christ can you be forgiven and be saved. Sometimes you see bumper stickers that say, make Jesus Lord of your life. You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. He's exalted to the right hand of God. You either submit to him and serve him, knowing that he loves you so much and cares for you so much that he died so that you could be in his kingdom. Or you rebel and you reject and you face destruction. Those are the options. And we hope that this morning you will respond just as these people at Pentecost did who heard the word gladly, the Bible says. And when Peter told these people stricken in conscience who knew they were in sin and knew Jesus was Lord, what do we do? He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this morning, that promise is just as certain and just as true for any of us as it was for them. If you're a child of God and there's some area of your life that you have been reluctant to surrender to Jesus, some area of your life in which you've been a rebel, we encourage you to repent and be restored while we stand and sing together. Amen.